0: Welcome to the Healing the City podcast. My name is Eric Siepen. The following audio is from the Living Room Talks. The Living Room Talks are an annual event at the Village Church showcasing speakers on topics which they have a level of expertise. Speakers are chosen from the Village Church community and are given 20 to 30 minutes to present on a topic that offers practical wisdom for life. In this episode, Bob Ewing talks about money, money, money. We're, we're not starting just with money. We're starting with money, 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 right? Um, money, money, money. I mean, I thought it was interesting. First two talks, I mean, we talked about money, right? It was just, it, it, it's everywhere. So that is uh, Monday through Friday, Bob. Um, enough of him. Um, I am a personal financial consultant. So my day job primarily entails my work with about... 400 or so families, um, most of whom live around these parts, and what I do is help them take care of their money. That's my job. And so most of my work with them revolves around the assets, that's the context, the assets that they have with us. So I am talking with people a lot about like their 401Ks and their IRAs and their stocks and bonds and mutual funds, annuities, you know, all these different financial products and, and solutions. And most of those conversations are, are preceded by some sort of financial planning engagement. Um, and that's part of my job. I'm a certified financial planner or CFP for short. And so I talk to clients about things like um, savings and investment strategies or generating a paycheck in retirement, um, end-of-life issues um, about you know leaving assets to loved ones or charity. In fact, yesterday at 5 o'clock found me meeting with a family that had suddenly lost a husband and father, and it's like, well, you know, now what, what do we do? So that, that's what I'm doing, you know, day in, day out. Lots of conversations around things that, you know, have dollar signs attached to them. Um, but what I think I really do, um, what I really do is guide people to a place where they can think about their money and talk about their money and ultimately manage their money without getting freaked out. That's my job, that's what I do. Um, and, and, and bear in mind, I'm, my, my clients are successful people. I mean, these are, you know, you know, surgeons and lawyers, executives, I mean, I got MacArthur geniuses that I work with. Um, and, and so they're smart people and, and they're well off. I mean, on average, um, you know, these people are among the top, you know, 10% wealthiest Americans. So you, you wouldn't think that, that getting them to a place where they're not freaked out about money would, would be all that tough, right? Um, but it is, <laughs> and I have a day job as a result of that. Part of my day job um, is actually talking to audiences like this one, this is, this is actually what I do. So I'm not just telling you what I do, I'm doing what, what I do here. So I'm on the clock, okay? Uh, <laughs> Um, and, and if you came here, you know, expecting to hear, you know, six things to do with your money in 2020 or, you know, seven financial mistakes to avoid, you know, five of which you probably made this morning. Um, if, you, <laughs> if, you're, if, if you're coming here to hear that, you're probably going to be disappointed. So I'm going to apologize in advance, but don't worry. You are guaranteed a full refund on the purchase price of your ticket here this morning. Okay, so, so it'll be all right. Um, but what I did want to talk about uh, today is, is really just um, share a few things that I think I've learned in 20 years of doing this, and kind of talk more about this, you know, notion of you know financial financial anxiety, you know, kind of why we have that, um, what it looks like, how it impacts our relationships, and uh, you know, if time allows, maybe even a couple, three things we might be able to do about it. Um, but I want to start with that and I'm going to tell you, y'all are freaked out about money. Um, I know this, I I know this for a fact because just over the last few weeks, um, numbers of you have come up to me and said things like, really looking forward to living room talks, (laughs) really looking forward to hear you tell me what to do with my money. And, and it's usually accompanied with that kind of a nervous chuckle, you know. <laughs> and and, and I, I didn't hear this just, you know, once or twice. I mean, I heard it enough that, you know, I really started to think about that. And, you know, I started to think about, you know, what, what else do we own or have that, requ- that that compels us to go to somebody and say, what should I do with this? I mean, nobody ever comes up to me and says, I, I got this food in my refrigerator. What what do I do with it, Right. I never hear that. I mean, if you came up to me and said, Bob, what do I do with my car? You know, I'd say, well, did, did you get in and, and, and drive it here this morning? Because if you did, I think, I think you're figuring this out. I think you're okay. But, but money is different, right? Money money is, is weird. And, you know, why is it weird? I mean, what is it about money that causes so much anxiety? I mean, money isn't everything, right? It's not everything, but it's, it's in the middle of a lot of things, right? It's, a, it's at the center of a lot of the really important stuff in our lives. I mean, when we think about our own childhoods, our, our educations, our careers, our families, um, our retirements, our legacies, all that stuff comes with a price tag, and the only way we're able to afford that is with money, so, no, money is not everything, but it's up there with oxygen, right i mean you know we 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 have to have that right and, and money money money's like magic right i mean money it, money is what allows us to 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 put a price tag on just about everything right i mean whether, you know, it's just, I'll start with this number. So $51,000 equals X, okay? And we know that, you know, it would buy us, you know, 1.76 years at the U of A. Or we could take that same amount of money and we could buy 4.12 new schools in Africa. I looked it up, it says you can do that for $12,500. Um, Kidney transplant runs about 400 grand, so a little bit less than that, about 13% of a kidney transplant. Um, with $51,000, we can get 3.43 photos with the president. That runs about $15,000. Now, that one kind of is interesting, right? Because some of us would look at that and say, well, that's a bargain. I would pay that. And and, and, and others of us look at that and say, you couldn't pay me $15,000 to get our picture taken with the president, right? So, I mean, money gives us a way to kind of argue with one another uh, about the relative value. Um, you know, I mean, we could look at, you know, $51,000 is like X place at, you know, the e-games, right? You know, I mean, that, that's got a dollar number. You know, how many COD, you know, is $51,000? Um, but it also, uh, that's, that's the number of the average income in the United States, so the average annual Individual salary in the United States is about $51,000. And so that's when things start to get weird. Because then we start to look at our own value and self-worth, right? I mean, this is when we can start to actually place a value on what each one of us is worth, right? And when we start to do that, emotions start to kick in, right? We start to have fear that maybe this is not enough, right? Or we start to get angry at, you know, some of the conditions um, you know, that might be in our way to realizing what we think is our financial potential. We might be envious of those who are doing better than we are. We might feel pride that we're doing so well. That's really dangerous cuz things change, right? And all of a sudden, we're not. And so when we have a price tag on our self-worth, we're introducing a lot of emotional volatility into our lives, right? So I want to talk more about this thing, and I want to talk more about this whole life on a spreadsheet concept in a minute, but I want to clear up... And pretty much deny a common misconception we have, which is that if we have more money, our anxiety will go away. Um, I, I can tell you emphatically that's not true. Now, I mean, for those of us who you know, are struggling you know, just financially around just you know, getting by, yeah, of course, more money is better. But that doesn't mean your financial anxiety is, is going away. It, it, it will not do that. And I carry a few stories around with me in my bag to to talk about that. Um, Today, we're going to talk about this guy. That is Mr. John D. Rockefeller. He lived from about 1839 to 1937. And he's widely recognized to be the wealthiest man in modern history. Um, He was in the oil business. He started Standard Oil. And... um, you know, that controlled about 90% of the the oil in this country. So essentially, you could not live in 1900 without doing business with John Rockefeller. I mean, he got some of your money if you were in this country. I mean, he got to be so powerful that they, they broke him up. You know, they took his company and turned it into about 34 different parts. And this is like well over 100 years ago that they did this. And even today, you take two of those parts, uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron, two oil companies, and if you put those two together, they'd still be the fifth largest company in the world. So he was big. He was big. So, of course, he doesn't have any anxiety about money, right? Right? Ha, 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 ha. So, here's the story. Um, So, one December day, his wife comes up to him, and she says, I am so excited, I have found out what young Johnny, this is their their son, I have have found out what young Johnny wants for Christmas. Okay? And history has not recorded whatever it is he wanted, but it did record his response. So after his wife says, I now know what Johnny wants for Christmas, his reply was, Excellent! It can now be denied him. I mean, who says that, right? I mean, this is, this is the richest guy in the world, right? And he's, and he's not a bad man. I mean, he's, he, he's not. I mean, you know, anybody who's rich, we're always suspicious of. But I mean, he, was, um, he gave away a ton of money. I mean, um, the Rockefeller Foundation has given away like $16 billion. In fact, what he said, uh, one of his earliest experiences with money was listening to a Methodist preacher say you want to make all the money you can so you can give as much away as you possibly can. And he said that was his mantra for life, right? Um, even as a father, reports are that he was you know, a doting you know, and affectionate father. But Somehow things went wrong. I mean, his son asked for a fish, and, and he gives him a rock, right? So, you know, how, how did this happen? You know, what, 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 what went on? And so it's kind of worth looking at a couple other things um, about Rockefeller. Uh, this, this story, no doubt, took place at his estate in, in Ohio, and this was like several hundred acres that he had within the city limits of Cleveland, Ohio, right? And this is back when Cleveland was someplace you wanted to be, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a cheap shot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Withdrawn, 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 withdrawn. But um, on this town, you know, I had this huge mansion, you know, on this estate. and 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 people said, when you went there, it was, you know, huge and nice, but surprisingly sparse. You know, a lot of the rooms were really unfurnished. And the Rockefellers did a lot of their daily living in just a couple of rooms, one of which was you know, heated by a, a coal stove that they huddled around, right? And, and so this, I kind of see this scene is pretty much very similar in that respect to the way he grew up, is in one or two very small rooms, although in his case, these rooms were in a series of rundown shacks across upstate New York and Pennsylvania. Um, And his father was not there. His father uh, was actually a con man, snake oil salesman, huge embarrassment and source of shame for him. He spent a lot of money buying people out not to have that secret get out. So the reason why I, I talk about that is because it illustrates that these early memories, early experiences with money have legs, right? They, they have a huge impact on the way we, we deal with money. So uh, my first advice here today is just for the next several minutes, tune me out. Uh, don't listen to what I'm saying. And, and just think a little bit about your earliest memories of money. And I would guess that those memories, to the extent they're powerful, come from either a position of abundance or a position of scarcity. And that those experiences are shaping your attitude towards money today. And I'd even get you to think even a little bit farther beyond that. And just think about all of the powerful experiences of your life. Tragedies and traumas both. They all have like a financial component. And... Um, It's not as though money is the source of the emotions that are driven there, but they're an amplifier. Money is a megaphone. It's like taking our emotions and turning them up to 11, right? So tune me out, think about that. But I wanted to get back to this notion of life on a spreadsheet. I mean, you can look at our lives is just a series of transactions, right? We take our time, we take our talent, and we sell them for stuff, you know? Things and experiences that we think are going to enrich our lives. Not that they don't, but that, that, that's what we're hoping it does. It's a series of transactions, and this is where life really starts to come off the rails here. Because transactions... Force us into relationships. Think about a transaction. There's a party, there's a counterparty, there's a buyer, there's a seller. If there ain't no seller, there ain't no buyer, right? So all of these transactions require us to have relationships. And so we start to think that all of our relationships have dollar signs kind of revolving around them, right? And it's big. The number one cause of divorce in this country is not infidelity. It is not sex at all. It is not abuse. It's not addiction. It is money, 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 money. So we're freaked out about money. Stakes are big. It impacts our relationships. I'm out of time. I wish you the best of luck with all of that. (laughs) No, no, no. We're not going to do that. So um, just a couple things I might might share. And and each of these is kind of a longer conversation. But we'll, we'll talk just kind of briefly about some of this stuff. The most important thing I think I do with clients is challenging them to think about what is it you really want. What do you really want? And those wants come with a dollar sign next to them, and that, as we've already established, messes up the conversation right away. So you might want to take that out of it and start to talk with yourself, with your spouse, really just about what you really want. That's thing one next thing you do is really boring process and structure and i'm not talking about budgeting and investment philosophy and all that i mean that's part of it but that what i'm really talking about here is having a process and a structure there to help anchor your emotions because our emotions cause us to do really stupid things with our money all right and our financial decisions are often made at our reptilian brain level, all right? And what that means is, is that we do dumb. From an investment standpoint, what it means we do is we buy high and then we sell low. And then we buy high again and then we sell low. As dumb as that sounds, that's what the average investor does, why? Because they sell when the news sucks and it's just a good idea not to be invested. When does it feel right to be invested again? Well, after the markets come up and everybody's feeling good, right? That's how our emotional brains work. So that's why you want to have a process and structure in place, not to eliminate the emotions. I mean, I tried that. That doesn't work. It's just to give you a structure, a place to hang those and actually deal with them as you're making financial decisions. Last thing is really rinse and repeat. Plans are nothing. Planning is everything. That's a military quote from General Eisenhower, Um, but it's true in financial planning. I mean, every engagement I have is a snapshot in time, but the conditions are going to change five minutes after they walk out of my office. So it's just realizing that your financial process is is that. It's an ongoing process. It is dynamic. It changes, not just with economic and market conditions, but with changes in your life. So you want to be able to adjust to that. So those are three basic principles. Um, I can't help myself unless I talk about something specific here. So just real quickly, um, around here a couple situations that I run into a lot with people is that um, either one, I finally saved a little bit of money that I don't think I need to set aside for emergencies, or I want to start doing something for my kids' education. So uh, my equivalent of uh, take two aspirin and call me in the morning is a Roth IRA. So a Roth IRA, um, you can contribute up to $6,000, seven if you're over 50. Uh, it's after tax. We've so already paid taxes on these dollars. And those dollars can accumulate tax deferred. You don't have to pay taxes on them while you're in there. And when you hit retirement age, you can pull that money out, all of it, including the growth, tax-deferred. So it's a beautiful retirement vehicle, but you're also able to pull out the money you've contributed tax-free and penalty-free. So you always have access to those, so you can save for your retirement and pull out money for your kid's college education um, before that age without a penalty. So it's a great multi-purpose vehicle. So, uh, in fact, now my time is up, so, uh, let me open it up for any questions. There's one.
1: Okay. Uh, I was just gonna ask what are the down, what are the downsides of a Roth IRA?
0: Um, The downside really is to the extent you invest it, you know, you can invest it in things like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. The more you're trying to grow it, the more the possibility of volatility would come in there. And so if you are in a position where you need it, inevitably you need it at a time when your investments are down and it's not so advantageous that way. But that, that's the big disadvantage.
1: I also, sorry, this is bothering me. I have to add, You didn't get to mention this in the speech, but average is not what everyone is making. So when you emotionally get upset, like $51,000 is the average. Just in case anyone forgot, average is just the mean of everybody, right? There are a lot of people above and a lot of people below, right?
0: Great, great point. And the median numbers are different, right? So Yeah, absolutely (laughs) true. Um, same thing with investment returns, by the way. Um, people in my line of work can get very complacent talking about average investment returns. We never see them. We don't have average years. We have extraordinary years. We have really lousy years. We don't have average years. So great observation, Donna. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering where you go to get a Roth IRA. If you, like, where do you get it? Do you just where go do online? you get or? one? That that's what I would recommend. I mean, there's a. I mean, that's a larger question: is you know how do you actually deal with somebody? I mean, where 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 do you go for advice? Um, to open an account, particularly if you're kind of getting started, I would go online with some sort of discount brokerage, some place where one you're not going to have any nuisance account fees that you got to pay. Number two, you want to have the cost of investing pretty low, so you want to have it some place where you're not paying somebody huge commissions uh, to get you into something um, and that the underlying cost of expenses are low. So, you know, that, that that's the way you do it is just Google it online and look at, you know, discount brokerages. I mean, I work for one, but we'll, we're going to leave their name out of it for this engagement. So, um, did that answer your question, Daniel, Someone? Well, do you, have a, do you have any other name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll go offline for that one if you don't mind.
1: Um, what do you think about stocks that are like continuously doing well? Like, should you sell them, <laughs> or like, because it's like, do I wait then until it goes down really low, or you know, it's 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 hard to know when the best time. I'm thinking specifically of Tesla. I don't know if you know anything about them or not,
0: but I, I know it was up a little bit last week, right? Well, like they just yeah. been. Complete, um, like just going up and up and up so um you know trees don't go to the sky right um and, and so you know when, when to sell an investment is i mean it's not really hard to figure that out it, it's it's impossible to know when, when <laughs> to figure that out um you know with any investment i mean or should you sell like should you just kind of leave it. I mean, maybe. I mean, the most important thing for an investor is to have the right mix of investments, right. risky growth type of investments, conservative income type of investments. Everybody should probably own some of those. It's just a matter of what the proportions are. Sure. So, the most important thing with regarding investment performance is to have the right mix of investments because that mix is about 90% of the ball game. Um you know, when you get in the individual stock level, you look at things that, like, you know, is it overvalued? What are its earnings exactly. prospects? Yeah, exactly. um, You know, there's tons of stuff on any individual security with regards to that.
1: Okay. Uh, you mentioned how money can uh, be really bad for relationships. Um, any advice you got when it comes to financial conflict like especially within a marriage when two people can't get on the same page there's a lot of emotion involved
0: yeah i mean it, it's tough um you know like any other disagreement talking is good right um and and with finance it's easy not to talk it's easier just to stew about it um, we know how well that helps right um so just being able, you know, first of all, have that conversation with yourself. I mean, we got a lot of inner conflicts ourselves about money. I mean, on the one hand, you know, um, uh, I was just going to talk about the whole notion of like daily bread versus, you know, stewardship. And that's, boy, we can talk about that forever. But there's a lot of internal conflicts that, you know, we need to resolve first. But, uh, or, or continue to resolve. Like I say, it's a process. Things don't really, you know, stop. Um you know, have a third party help with you. I mean, I I, I do watch people in my office and I wonder, well, glad I'm not in that car on the way home, right? <laughs> um, you know, but it is good to have a third party, even not just to take sides, but to give validation to other people's, you know, epi- emotions and concerns.
1: Bob, um, over here. Um, yes. So, you know, I with Donovan's question, um, yeah, asking about like the average is, um, when I look on, um, certain portfolios that say the average gain is whatever, 2%, 3%, um, you know, every, and then every year is different. I look at my, like my student debt that has a fixed growth. The debt has a fixed growth that never changes. Um, so I guess my question is, how do I manage the certainty of fixed debt growth with the uncertainty of uh, you know fluctuating savings growth, and still try to have cash on
0: hand for emergencies? Yeah. So if I understand the question, Corey, it's really about um, managing debt. You know, to the extent it's appropriate to use assets to pay off debt, right? So I get that one a lot, like. Um, Similar example, but when I work with somebody who's retiring, a lot of people would say I'd love to be out of my mortgage right now. I'm retired. I don't want to have that debt, which is a great goal to have. Um, the question is, is, okay, how am I going to pay it off? And if one of the suggestions I get is that, well, I'll pull money out of my retirement plan or my IRA, that's a big chunk of cash maybe that you would pull out, Those distributions are treated as as ordinary taxable income. That's bracketed, right? So you're going to hit a huge tax bill on that. So generally, that doesn't make sense to do that. So you want to look at the tax consequences of how you would pay it off, right? Beyond that, you look at, you know, well, what am I making on the money that I would pay it off with? I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, when you're talking about risk-based assets like stocks or mutual funds, they're going to go up and down a bit, but by and large, you're going to outperform, you know, whatever you're paying on a mortgage, 3%, 4 5%. Um, gets dicier as we go up through the continuum, student loans, personal debt, credit cards at 20%. I mean, that stuff you need to avoid. It's ruinous to the extent you can, right? But, you know, for, you know in that situation, I'm asking someone, well, how burdensome is the cash flow in servicing that debt? In other words, are you able to make those payments and pay that down that debt without having blow a huge boat in, in your overall cash flow? Cash flow.
1: I like that answer. And then at the same time, the, the growth of debt accumulates. If I say, well, I'll just take the 10 or 20 years to pay this debt off, you know, at a 6% interest rate, I'm going to end up paying twice as much as I would have had I taken the penalty and just paid it all off now.
0: You do, but how how did you do it, right? And then we've had enough of this? Okay, Okay. we're we're done. In the past, real estate was a good investment in lieu of the riskiness of stocks and things like that. Is that still true or is that... Is that something that you, you're definitely going to make more money in the stocks than you are in real estate? Or real estate is risky enough that, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, one thing about real estate is that it gives us income, right? And so that can be an important part of our cash flow. Real estate is really localized, right? I mean, so it, it's hard to just say real estate in the way you can say stocks. You know, Are we talking about Tucson residential car, you know, real estate? Are we talking about you know, New York City commercial real estate? So that's all different. I, I will say this, that people tend to get overconfident with real estate. I mean, you know, I remember in 2007, the number of people who were coming to me and saying, yeah, I'm cashing out of all this crap you got with me, and I'm going to go buy some real estate, because real estate never goes down, right? Wah, 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 Very well done. Well done. Hey, you've been terrific. Um, I'll just stick around, so thanks a lot.
1: You've been listening to Healing the City podcast with Eric Seepin. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify
0: and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.